Hi, and welcome to Real Player Fetish Talks Real Player Play, an Instagram Live slash podcast slash YouTube thing. Um, I go through all these every week, and I can't really make up what it actually is, but it's about kink and it's about sober life. And this week, yet again, we're going to Berlin and talk to a rough tank top. I'll bring him in. Hello. Hello there. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Excellent. <clears throat> How are we doing? I am good. I I am ready. I've I've got a visitor. Hold on. You've got a visitor. Can you see him? Can you see him? Oh, I've look at the little Right. He's my foster, and because I've been at work all day, he therefore refuses to leave me alone today. Oh well, I'm sure we can survive having a guest on the interview. Yeah, with a little luck, he'll climb up and start bonking my head. Anyway, let's jump into it. I'll start with my standard questions from the start, and then we'll just see where we go from there. Sure. Uh, let me just see. I, I still can't remember my own fucking questions, and I've asked them a million times at this point. What do you prefer you ca I call you? Names, pronouns, and title. Um, <clears throat> name, AFJ. And pronouns are he, him, his. I uh, finally completely accepted those around uh, when I was 35. And uh, title, if you if within a power exchange setting, if you're making yourself submissive to me, please, sir. I kind of really don't like daddy. And I hate it when people go, hey, sexy. And I'm like, no, that's not me. Go away. Noted, noted. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. So um, I, uh, I'm a gay male. I'm a gay man. Uh, I call myself sober because I actually never started. I just never started drinking, never started smoking, never took drugs, with a little exception that we may go into. I've lived in many countries. Uh, this accent is completely fake. It was given to me when I went to American school as a child in South America, I'm actually Dutch, but I haven't lived there for 20 years. I came out when I was 19 in 1989. And yeah, I've been in gay spaces for God, the rest of the time, which is like, you know, 30 years now. So yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, well, you've already kind of answered the first question, but I'll ask it anyway, just for continuity. Mm -hmm. Completely sober, clear-headed, or a social drinker? Uh, I don't drink. Uh, so that <laughs> that was fun when I lived in the UK, because they all drink all the time. Um, I, it's really interesting. I, I listened to some of your previous um, podcasts about what people consider sober. And so in full disclosure, I do use poppers, for example, while I have sex, um, sometimes a lot. Some people consider that triggering, other people don't, since I've never had to deal with addiction. Um, for me, it's just something that lasts 30 seconds and then goes away, right? Uh, I mm. am supplementing, based on the discussion that you had last year, I am supplementing my testosterone right now. Uh, but it's not really having much of a psychological effect. So I don't really consider that being on drugs either. Uh, I've always been this crazy. <laughs> 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 
Fair enough. Fair enough. And the last question, what is clear play to you and why is it important? So you, uh, you just dropped out there, but you meant real clear play, right? Yeah. yeah. What, so, is clear, uh, what is clear play to you and why is it important? So clear play to me very specifically means informed consent. We are right now in a space world where when people are very obviously drunk, when they're intoxicated and people have sex with them, we consider them as having had sex without consent, AKA rape, right? And the thing is that even if you're not out of it, but you're on drugs, especially G or meth, I can talk you into anything, right? Whatever informed consent you gave me, I can talk you into anything because your boundaries are so weakened at that stage. You are going to have a hard time enforcing them. And so when I'm playing with somebody and I'm very, very strict about like, you know, when it's one-on-one, -on -one, no comes allowed. And it's mm -hmm. surprising how hard I found people out of my house when they violated me. I tried to be graceful, but eventually after 10 years, I got tired and it's like, you're high, get out. And you always get like, no, I'm not high. I'm like, dude, come on. You're so high. But um, when I have hookups in other spaces, in more public spaces, I get very worried when I notice somebody is on any kind of those drugs because I go like, okay, I have to be very careful about consent here because you could end up doing something that you will severely regret tomorrow. And I don't want to be that person who did that to you, right? That's, that is fully understandable. And I think that, that is kind of an ongoing theme when I talk to people who are sober or ch choose to be sober is the question of consent when you're intoxicated or high. So it is absolutely important that you, because consent can be taken away at any time, but if you're abbreviated, you, you won't be able to take it away. Right. And we are now at a point as a society because of a lot of date rape because of people being made drunk or made high we're getting to a point where that no longer counts as informed consent now our gay male play spaces you know i live in berlin they're like on every corner no they're not but you get the idea um people have ideas what a berlin is yeah that is more relaxed, but it, we're still slowly getting there. We're having more of these conversations of like, you know, dude, what did you do last night? <laughs> and do you even remember who with? And, and that is slowly changing. Yeah, I've, I've, I've put myself in situations where um, I G'd out in the past. And luckily enough, the friend I was with pulled the third person off me because he would have kept going uh so i had no consent of saying that i just woke up eight hours later and he told me what happened and i have no recollection of it but never have known except for the bleeding yes yes which so actually you, you mentioned to you, a oh which actually happened to a friend of mine but he was explicitly drugged woke up eight hours later in the bar and thereby had zero converted. And this was pre-prep, this was eight years ago. 
I've, I've, um, as I deal with um, some chemsex charities here in the UK, I get examples of interactions they have with people on Grinder and Scruff, where people tell their stories and so on. And I've, some of the stories I've heard from either like very inexperienced young people being drugged, raped, and so on. It's absolutely heartbreaking um, because that is not what the gay experience should be like. No. When you get beaten up, you should have chosen it. Absolutely, absolutely. So you, you mentioned that you've, yeah, you, you mentioned you've, um, that you, you choose not to drink. You never went down that path. Is there any reason behind that or is it just something that never really happened and you didn't want to do? Um, the story that I tell is that no child or teenager or young teenager actually likes beer or wine, right? You take a sip, you go like, this is disgusting, but all your friends and your family or whatever all around, so you keep sipping to feel adult, right? Yeah, yo, I'm having alcohol, I'm a big person now. Well, at that point in my life, this would have been relevant. I had no friends and there was no peer pressure in my family. My family likes their alcohol and their answer was, oh, more for us. Because, you know, you're not having any. So um, when I actually then left high school, started studying, and then went into a student society, I saw no point in starting to start drinking. It was still disgusting. I don't know how you people drink it. I'm sorry. It, it tastes like gasoline or paint thinner. It just never grew on me. And <clears throat> by that time, oddly, it had within like a few weeks, it had become my brand. Like, oh yeah, this is FJ, he doesn't drink. Oh, ha, 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 how does he get through life? He must be so uh, timid and um, standoffish, which I wasn't. Uh, so I never really felt I needed it. And there was another thing is I've been told during my youth that I'm too much that I talk too much, I talk about the wrong things, I'm too loud, I'm too whatever. So I had, at that time when I was creating my social life, this morbid fear of being out of control and being too loud and annoying and obnoxious, which a lot of drunk people really are. So I didn't drink to avoid that. In fact, I barely talked to avoid that. I learned to listen for like a decade so I just never started it. Cigarettes, same thing. I smoke a cigar once a month these days to um, hang out with my cigar smoking buddies. Olaf does this, you know, Black Weekend Cigar Night. It's full leather. Uh, my friends wanted to go to it. It's actually very sexy, even though there's very little sex. And, um, you know, I was hanging out there and go like, Jesus Christ, I, I at least so it's a little bit of peer pressure, but I started smoking cigars one a month. I still poison myself. It's hilarious uh, to see me just go like that. But it turns out that if I have a lot of sugar before, I do a lot better. Noted, because that is, that is one fetish where I like the look. I just can't get over the smell. 
kind of grows on you if you do it enough you get that positive association you know i used to love it that there was no smoking in bars anymore then i started going to gay bars in berlin i smell cigar smoke it's like oh we're gonna do something tonight man something's gonna happen because the thing is it's astonishing the difference it makes to be holding a cigar while you're sitting at the upper steps of New Action, Berlin's, you know, most hardcore fetish bar, or not holding a cigar, like people just look at you more when you have that cigar and you get the bootlickers even faster. And it's just, in a way, hysterical and amazing. And the other way you go like, oh, okay, if that's all it takes, light up. But once a month, because, you know, the whole weekend, I'm just feeling like shit. <laughs> So you say you've lived a lot of different places and, and in your little little blurb you gave to me, you say that you've navigated the gay scene on two continents. Can you tell a little bit about that experience? Because I can imagine the gay scene varies from place to place and how people interact and what, they, what their interests are. Well, in a way, yes, because I've mostly lived in spaces that are Anglo-Saxon, you know, as an adult, I lived in the Netherlands, the UK, and two places in the United States. And the aesthetics and the um, socialization of the gay spaces, especially the kink gay spaces, the male kink gay spaces, were very, very similar. It's all that iconography of post-World War II bikers in California, as shown in Tom of Finland, in Bill Ward's work, and you know, in Etienne's work as well over in France. So that iconography all created this idea of like why we're all wearing biker leather or biker leather derived stuff. <clears throat> and and those spaces, like we God, we travel and travel, man. Like like we destroy the 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 world with our airplane travel. <clears throat> so all these spaces were in a way quite the same. I felt equally comfortable. So I came of age of Amsterdam in the 90s, right, when it was the gay capital of the world. I'd had a big relationship. I started to work in a bar called The Cockring as a bar back. And that's where I, you know, came of age sexually. And everywhere I went, I just, you know, the, the running joke that I had with my partner later in life was that we just had to get in a cab and say, take us to the Eagle, wherever we were, right? And we'd end in a bar where we would feel comfortable and we knew what people were gonna do and what they were gonna say and what they were gonna think. And that, um, that ended up to be true. So I actually haven't found, at least in, in gay kink culture, the places that I've lived don't have that much variety. And quite often you see the same faces. Then you go to Gran Canaria and there they are again, right? On Fetish Week. Yes. Now, <clears throat> The uh, there's there there's a lot of variety in, for example, gym culture, like the gyms that you go to and there you really need to adjust um, to the local culture. <clears throat> but even there, there's, you know, a lot of gays, always every gym and a lot of similarities. And uh, also first the uh, Internet hookup culture, which honestly, I'm old enough to remember Unit and AOL before the web, and then also then manhunt.net, 
and all those things and those apps and those have homogenized how we interact with each other. But I've never been to like say lived in Japan. So I have no idea, you know, how different that that sense I have this sense of familiarity, but I've also never been challenged very much on that. That's very good. That's very good. Um so how do you find navigating the kink scene? And you you've mentioned like the drug taping and the consent aspect of it and so on. You 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 mentioned you've gotten to a point now where you just can't deal with people who are 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 high and so on. How are you found navigating being in the scene where we have to be honest, drugs is quite prevalent and it's quite normalized. So it's not just the drugs, it's the alcohol, right? Um, mm. People, I actually have a harder time navigating dealing with really drunk people than people who are high. Um, that's just a personal preference of mine of, you know, what comes out of their mouth and how unpredictable really drunk people get, right? And how can, they can get mm. suddenly aggressive. And with meth, you see it coming. You're either an aggressive meth user or a sexy meth user. You don't get those enormous mood swings that much. But with alcohol, you do. And the thing is, I, I totally understand it because gay spaces feel so intimidating. We feel so judged. We are both hunter and prey, and we get looked at. So, you know, every, as I tell to straight people, like imagine every neurosis that women have about being seen, about being hunted, and then being the person perpetrating it on the other people as well, right? So not only we feel seen, we also know how we are looking at other people. We are our own male gaze. And in order to deal with that, especially if you're young and you're doing, you may not have that many friends, who can blame some liquid courage, right? So it's so prevalent and it's, and I'm completely and utterly used to it. And even in my student days, when I was in a student group where everybody wanted to get, you know, ragingly drunk, you just learn to smile and nod a lot and, and really <laughs> realize when you're just not getting anywhere. Um, the funny thing is how naive I can be about whether people are high or not. I just think that people might be really anxious or really highly strung, or maybe they're like, you know, really worried about something and I'm like trying to calm them down. And later one of my friends will go like, you realize this person was sky high, right? And I'm like, really? Oh, 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 oh. Matthew always noticed because he can't sit still, right? So, and, and yeah. so that's the absolutely clearest one. But for the rest, I can jump so wrong, which is really funny sometimes. Um, but you just learn to deal with it. Uh, I have a lot of people who always say like, God, I was so drunk to deal with me and go like, yeah, well, you were my friend. You do this. Yeah, I, I, I now have friends who um, either has taken a page out of my book and stopped drinking or just gotten to a point where it's like, I need to stop my binge drinking. It's not giving anything quality of life. It's not, an, or some people are just going, do you know what, I'm too old for this shit. Right? I mean, I'm already too old for this shit of coming home at 4.30. I still do it, but I know if I do that on Friday to Saturday, 
morning that my Saturday is just gone. And I used to, okay, this is sad nostalgia story. I used to work between midnight and six as a bar back in Amsterdam, go home, take aspirin and milk. Fortunately, I wouldn't have drunk, right? So go home, take milk, sleep for hours, and then take the train to see my parents in the middle of the country who would go like, are you sleeping enough? You look a little tired. And I'm like, I'm fine. And now it's like, you know, <laughs> if I go out until 4.30 Friday to Saturday morning, somewhere around Sunday afternoon, I'll be like, mm, time to go to the gym again. So yeah, no, it's the age thing. You just don't want to do it. But Ralph, let's be very clear. You're in London, right? I am, yes. Yeah, so of all the places that I've lived, Binge drinking is the biggest sport in Great Britain and specifically in London, right? So it, over here, binge, binge drug taking is a thing, but only in dance clubs. But binge drinking, people just look down on you. Like these Brits come over, especially like, you know, some Scots or English, they start drinking like crazy and the rest of the world is just like, Really? Because, but because that's a real cultural thing in the UK. And that I actually have the hardest time navigating because you'd be around your friends and they literally say, I don't want to experience reality anymore, including you, let's get all get wasted. The most, it's being sober or not using drugs can be extremely isolating. I remember very early in my time in London I was standing around with some guys in the Eagle and I was thinking like, yeah, I'm making, I'm making friends, dude. I'm finally like, because London is really hard to break into. First three years in London, I yes. had expat friends, right? Tell me if this sounds familiar. You know, I'm standing uh, there in, in the absolutely, Eagle. Uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. The first two, three years, I almost got to a point where I'm going to go home to Denmark. This is not working. Yeah. So I was standing, standing around, you know, bantering, banter. Um, and then one of the guys goes, who was really, you know, and everybody knew that's what he did to be popular, would go like, I got some Coke. Anybody want to do some lines? In between, in literally five seconds, I was standing alone, again, in a gay bar by myself, I had being triggered with abandonment issue and people pestering me and teasing me in my youth and I had no friends going like, well, this is like a lot of therapy and very concentrated amount of time. And I left and I was furious, furious, furious. I got online with, and you know, my online friends, my global, if you live in a lot of places, you make a lot of global friends, right? So there's always somebody. And they said like, FJ, I would hate if somebody trying to buy a friendship with Coke would make you bitter. I was like, yeah, that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm not accepting reality. This is just what happens. Sometimes you're outside of the party. And my response in the next 10 years has been to realize I am the party. I am the goddamn party. And if you're going to go somewhere else, that's too bad because I'm still the goddamn party. And if I want to go out and fuck somewhere, I can do that. If I want to sit at home and binge watch something, I can do that but you left me, I did not leave you, goodbye. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, oh, I wish, I wish I had that brain 
it, like that setting of my it brain took sometimes. Some time. I, I would say, yeah. It took time, and also right now it's much easier for me because something amazing happened during my time in Berlin, and because of COVID is that I got very close to a small group of guys who are incredibly supportive for each other. Like we were all like just dealing with COVID together on the group chat and once a week having cake in the rain, socially distanced. And now it's like, you know, you come, I, I, I don't have those moments anymore, but um, it took some time to really go that, but it's a discipline. You have to stop from, from feeling that when you're isolated, you have to say, these were my choices. I chose not to do Coke. I chose not to do alcohol. I'm putting myself outside of gay mainstream and it's working for me, even though sometimes it's not gonna be comfortable because you're it it's as as a sober person and and i because i kind of i can see it from both sides i've i've done the drinking i've done the drug taking and now i'm sober i i used to be that person in the bar if someone told me they didn't drink oh you're boring why are you doing that that's weird and i i i've said this several times on here i i that is the one kind of reaction i regret of my past is being that dick kind of like shaming someone for something that I, it's not really any my my business why they choose to be sober but me for shaming them that is just a dick move and it's something i've learned um, yeah it, it is so, a, yeah. it is a dick yeah. move but i have to ask did you do did you say that while you were living in denmark or did you say that while you were living in britain i probably also did it in denmark because denmark is also okay. quite a heavy drinking country and they're very proud of it right right so because it's a social enforcement thing you have to all drink so that you all show your vulnerability at the same time getting drunk has a very specific function or it has many specific functions in in britain and in the wider world one of them is healing rifts because you become drunk together you're both emotionally vulnerable you both see each other in a ridiculous state sometimes and then that's healed and we all go like so the thing that i get wasn't you're boring because i don't get that very often <clears throat> but what i do get for reasons but what i do get is um people feel judged around me when people are you know there's people who when they uh, i've had 20 years ago i had some friends who encountered meth culture and because they knew i didn't take and because i they knew i was very worried about it because I was the one in Boston for a while that people called during a chill out when nobody could get hard anymore. And, you know, I had insomnia, I would be up at two and I would get that call on AOL and go like, hey, and I'd be like, yeah, I get to fuck handsome men. And after about six months of that, I was like, I get to fuck handsome men who by day wouldn't give me a second look. And, but it really is this thing of, you know, people encounter that culture, they see me not taking and they think I'm judging them. Incidentally, I am, I just don't show it. But, you know, they, they, they feel judged. And when you don't drink, people feel automatically judged by you. And therefore they try to convert you to do that drinking thing, right? And um, yeah, that's just how that works. But again, you're making that choice 
to put yourself outside of culture that way and, and do your own thing. And that comes with, that comes with consequences. Um, it's really hard to get me to drink anyway, because it tastes disgusting. Like I, even good wine, I'm like, why, why? This is wasted grape juice. What's your problem? So I, I'm not susceptible to this whole boring thing because they haven't made anything that I want to drink. I've, I've cocktail or two that I thought like this is really freaking dangerous because I can barely taste the alcohol and you know it tastes like fruit juice and I could get really drunk on this and then by the third sip it's like no you have this but that's just how my taste works because I never acquired the taste it's kind of like poppers the reason that I acquired the taste for poppers was because I was working in a kink gay bar and they were around me all the freaking time and the first couple of months, I was like, this is disgusting. And after, you know, a couple of months of that, I was like, ooh, this is really hot. But I didn't have that with alcohol. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the funny thing. Like you mentioned, you mentioned poppers and so on. This, when, when you talk to someone who's like me, sober, um, I don't necessarily, I don't subscribe to that if you take poppers and you're sober, then you've relapsed. I don't subscribe to that. I think it's I think it's very damaging to look at it that way. I think if you are not using crystal meth and you have a sniff of poppers whilst you've been railed by someone, that is not a relapse and it's not gonna send you down a spiral. Um, mm -hmm. That is my well, view. It's not a view that's shared by everyone, but that's fine. Everyone has their own journey when it comes to boundaries for example i also drink non-alcoholic beer that's 0.5 percent because most non-alcoholic beers are there is a certain percent of alcohol in it but i that is my personal preference but then again i'm not an alcoholic i am a crystal meth user that's what i recovered from i was a binge drinker absolutely but i was never an alcoholic i could take and leave that that wouldn't that was never an issue for me so th it's it's all about the individual and what their journey is around anything that's a stimulant. Like you mentioned, um, uh, like gym users with steroids and stuff like that. That's also a personal personal choice. If I would never say to someone in recovery, "Oh, you're using steroids," then you're not sober. It's like, no, that's not for me to tell you. That is what you feel your recovery is. Right, and speaking from experience that in itself is so incredibly dose dependent and chemistry dependent. So if I were to meet somebody in recovery and they're telling me like, you know, I'm taking a gram of steroids in total a week or more and it is Trenbolone or Anivar or whatever. And I go like, working something out and um this is less destructive than meth but there's still something going on here and i hope your muscles make you really happy and please take care of your liver and your cholesterol but um if some but it, it really is a journey that you have to figure out on your own because there there's stressors there's things that will ping your serotonin or any other pleasure drug anywhere like shopping can become an addiction as well so what are you going to do never buy something in recovery we do know that there are clusters of addictions that go together right and for some people that cluster includes poppers and so they have to be
careful about that. Uh, for some people, that includes meth and alcohol. Um, somebody that, you know, um, I wouldn't call him a close friend, but somebody that I, you know, I felt a very strong connection with. Uh, <clears throat> every six weeks, he would relapse. And you could see always, you could always know that he would, that his brain would justify the relapse by getting really drunk. Right now, this person was huge, so you know, getting really drunk required like twenty shots of tequila or something equally insane. But Jeez. you could see that he was doing the justification of tonight I'm gonna drink, and everybody would know, oh, you're gonna drink, then we all know what's gonna happen next. See you next Tuesday with you know scratches all over your face because you're a picker when you're on that. Right? All right, it's gonna happen. Um, there are these clusters of things that you should and shouldn't do. But one for, thing, for example, that you never hear is nicotine, also quite strong. Mm -hmm. And yet, going to rehab, it's the last thing they want you to give up. Because if you give up nicotine, then you're really going to go crazy for a while. Yeah, it's, it's like you mentioned, like, meth and alcohol going together. This is one of the reasons I don't drink alcohol. Because I am that person. I will drink, mm -hmm. then I will get to a certain level of high, and then I'm like, oh, I need more than this. And I will go for the meth or the GHB, or, well, I wouldn't do GHB with alcohol, never mind. But I would go for the meth at least, or the methadrone. Um, so this is one of the reasons I made the conscious choice of not drinking. Explain methadrone to me. Because literally every time that I talk to somebody, and they're like, I'm on methadrone, I did methadrone. I go like, why? What were you getting out of it? And every time it's like, yeah, it was terrible. I just chewed my face off. And I'm like, why do people take this? Somebody explain this to me. It's, I kind of look at methadrone as a cheap man's crystal meth. So is it you? That it's, it's, uh, I, I remember when it, came out originally it was very good when it came out and then it started getting cut or it got banned certain ingredients and they have to change the ingredients the reason the reason it became so popular was because the ingredients were legal separate it wasn't illegal and then it's just kind of stuck around but i don't think a lot of people use it that much anymore but it yeah like i said it was a cheap man's crystal meth, if, if you could say. If you couldn't afford crystal meth, you could definitely afford methadrone. You could literally go into a shop and buy it. So, okay. Okay. Uh, and then when it got banned, it just got really shit really, really quickly. Like anything that's illegal, gets caught with a lot of shit, it's not controlled. Um, that's the main problem with, with, I've always kind of been a firm believer. I, I, I look at like countries like Portugal that's legalized, uh, using it and looking at it as a health crisis then instead of a crime and you're not allowed to have drugs i very much believe in that system i'm not saying it's mm -hmm. perfect but the figures speak for themselves a lot of people don't agree with that and that's fine everyone has their different opinions on this um i've long had long discussions with my mother about it's because she very much doesn't like drugs and what it did to me but i'm still a firm believer of some people can use responsibly and take it and leave it and do it like every six months to three months and that's fine. I'm just not one of those people. 
I have a multiple diagnosis of PTSD, childhood PTSD. I have ADHD. So I'm just like the perfect recipe for a drug addict. Is there a genetic predisposition in your family towards alcoholism or drug use? I have an uncle who passed away some years back who had, was an alcoholic on my dad's side. But in general, mm -hmm. my family is quite okay. Um, we do have a predisposition for mental health issues, I've noticed, at least in my sibling mm -hmm. flock. But that can, be, that can be quite to do with uh, childhood traumas. We have quite a few right. of those. Because for hardcore addiction, you need... I have been told, I have read, you need two things, genetic disposition and childhood trauma. And the interesting thing about childhood trauma is that more people than you think have that. It's really interesting how many people have what's considered, a, considered an AC, an adverse childhood event. And if you have it's, those, you're in a danger zone. It's, it's the weird thing. I, I've talked to people who have gone through similar experiences as a child, as me, either with um, un uneasy home life, with alcoholism or um, um, uh, domestic abuse, um, and they're fine. Where someone like me, I have now diagnosed PTSD, childhood PTSD. Um, I also suffer with severe social anxiety and stuff like that, which is before I stopped like using drugs and alcohol, I always looked at myself as being a social butterfly and I love people. Take the drugs and alcohol away. I'm actually an introvert and I hate people. So I was self-medicating heavily. That's why I was doing it. It is called courage. Um, <clears throat> but you know, the, the thing is you should never beat yourself up about how you process a childhood experience compared to other people, right? Because they actually were not eating the same food as you that was influencing their brain. They were not breathing the same air as you where toxins were influencing their brain. Their trauma may superficially sound better or worse or different than you, but it just mm. hits different. I mean, we don't go comparing whether we get flu or not and go like, well, your flu is worse and therefore you're a better or worse person. It's like, no, you're just sick and you get what you get. And but there's also this thing it's, of saying it's like, I, <laughs> I, I have saying a, like, a friend who had a friend. Oh, sorry, we're speaking who, over each other. No, go ahead. I had a, I had a, I had a friend who uh, had a bad drug experience, um, mm -hmm. got psychosis, and now suffers with PTSD, and that was just one time. Yeah. So it, it different people, and it affects different people in different ways. Right, and the part of PTSD is that you know. Um, it's not the trauma that creates the PTSD. It's the not being able to process the trauma that creates PTSD. And so people mm. have different levels of support afterwards and different levels of, of you know, trauma endurance. And therefore, some get trauma, some, do, some don't get trauma. And also, I do want to point out, some might not get trauma now and then check in with them in 20 years Absolutely, there is there is a there is definitely a delayed effect on a lot of things, and all of a sudden it might click in your brain, and you're just in a puddle on the floor, and you can't do anything. There you go. But you know, so something so that going you back said to about, like oh, a lot of lag here. You first. 
Okay. Uh, well, let, let let me let you finish what you were going to say there, and then I'll go well, on. I wanted to, the next to ask you. You said you had really bad social anxiety. Uh, you had you know trauma that set you apart. That probably was creating a negative self-image. The messages that you were giving yourself were probably not very good, and you were self-medicating with drugs and alcohol, which is an extremely common story. Uh, self-medicating social situations with alcohol is something that I think like what. 80% of all people who drink do at some point. Um, <clears throat> you now have the experience of looking back. What would you have told Ralph to do instead, or young Ralph to do instead of drinking? Who's interviewing who? <laughs> um, do you know what? I, I've given that a lot of thought and there's a part of me I feel, and, and this sounds a bit cheesy, I wouldn't change a thing because okay. if, if I change something in my backstory, I may not be doing this. I may not be trying to help people understand their mental health, their drug addictions, their kink, where that type of stuff comes from. So do you know what? All the small quirky pieces in my puzzle make up who I am today. So. I wouldn't necessarily change a thing. Was it traumatic? Was it horrible? Absolutely. I got bullied horrendously when I was a kid. So, but it, it, all those pieces and all that trauma and all also really amazing things make up me. So I never, yeah. I never try looking back. What if I'd done this differently or this differently? Do you know what? I, I don't really regret. I regret hurting people around me. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I scared the shit out of my mom in my addiction years. Um, yeah. And I regret that, but I don't, I don't regret the way I've lived. I've lived a full life. I've experienced a lot of different things and I've experienced extreme highs, not chemically induced and extreme lows because of chemicals. So it's in the greater scheme of things, I'm quite happy that I've experienced these things to get to a point where I'm doing these type of things now. Does that answer your question? But that's because you came out of it, right? Um, yeah. So there's two things here. One is, Ralph, you're not dead yet. Sometimes you sound like you're no. giving a eulogy with like, I've lived highs and lows. Like, there's more to come. But second is, I, I have to remember what a friend of mine said when we were comparing childhoods, and his was horrific. And we were both like talking about how that had shaped us. And he says something like, you know, it's good that we found something out of our issues. Mine aren't nearly as bad. Mine are so average. It's good that we found something out of our issues. But you know, you don't need to go through trauma to be a good person. But it's good when you manage to make it that way, <laughs> you know, to get out mm. of the other sense. But I still have like always this question of like when I see, not that people ever come to me and say like, FJ, I want to drink because I don't feel like I belong. What should I do? Um, not that that ever has happened, but when I see situations like that, I wish I had better advice than, kid, put that alcohol away and toughen it up, or have only two and then toughen it up, or, or whatever, because that is a kind of choice that you have to make yourself. Your relationship to alcohol and drugs has to be negotiated by yourself in this gay space, because you're not going to get away from that. Either. I think I think when it comes to fitting in because I definitely struggle with being in social set settings especially at the moment I, I struggle quite a lot at the moment um, 
and it's it's I think when you need a drink to feel comfortable in a space, it's just about unpacking that and finding out why is that? Because most of the shit you project on other people that you think they're thinking about you, you're not that fucking important. But you really aren't. It's, it's the amount of things I project on people and I think they think something about me, it's more or less just about me. And it's nothing to do with them. And they've already moved on. They moved on to the next thing they're thinking about. And I'm not that fucking important. Right. I think sometimes I have to tell myself I am not that fucking important. Um, because you do become a little bit self-absorbed, not in a like a horrible um, celebrity kind of way, but, but kind of like you, you think, oh, whoa, me a lot of the time. And you can, it, it becomes a familiar friend to do that. Um, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I definitely have periods where I really get stuck in that kind of stuff. But it's not perfection. It's just getting on with things and learning new things about yourself. And so my reverse answer to that, and it's an extremely arrogant answer, is, okay, what if they are all thinking about me? If you're going to shine a spotlight on me, I'm going to be ready. Because I've been storing up my quick my quips. I've been listening to funny people or angry people. I've been putting all of that away in my grab bag to throw it out whenever I can, whenever I want to. I'm feeling very comfortable in myself tonight. And if I don't feel my comfortable, I will put on the attitude as if I am. If you're going to shine a spotlight on me, I'm ready. And that's, that's practice, right? That's something that you have to decide to do. And Unfortunately, I've always been quite expressive. So on the one hand, I was always too much to my family and the people around me. And on the other hand, I learned to cultivate that and throw it out whenever I need to, because that's the other way to go. If they're all thinking about you, you might as well really give them something to talk about. Or not, or realize they're not thinking about you at all, unless you're that guy who's constantly screaming for attention in the bar. Not that's me at all. <laughs> so you you mentioned in your little blurb that you have a, a ferocious taste i'm very curious to what that entails and I'm, I'm assuming that has something to do with your kink life when when did you start figuring out what you were into as a kink you're you categorize yourself as a sir and what does that entail with the ferocious bit i'm quite curious um you know, when we're in Gran Canaria, did you not see me play? I don't think I did, to be honest. Right, okay. So, I was too worried um, about what other people were thinking about me to notice no, anyone else. The thing is, I want to be goddamn seen, man, because I'm good at what I do. Or at least if I'm not, don't tell me. Um, so <clears throat> my fetish is not a texture fetish like, say, rubber or leather. I do wear leather for the signaling function, but at night I want to get out of it as quickly as possible because I find it stifling and um, um, ang, you know, um, tight. Um, <clears throat> my uh, fetish is power exchange. So I spent a lot of my formative years being feeling very powerless and feeling very disrespected. 
And so it is extremely connected to my sexuality to be in a power exchange where indeed somebody calls me sir, indeed is working towards my pleasure, is doing what I want. Um, and that can get pretty damn extreme. Um, I don't do bondage because consent issues as well. I like people to be able to choose to with me, be with me no matter what I do every single second. If you don't like it, you can walk away. But the fact that you're still here is a form of respect, is a form of power exchange. Um, and as I already wrote in some articles, the two articles that I wrote for Recon, uh, the bootlicking is a very important signifier of that. The other one is respectful language, using sir, being polite, toning down your sarcasm. There's a sub who now knows that I'm talking to him. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, and that <laughs> then moves moves forward into, you know, very standard penetrative sex with me as a, as a top. And uh, that is all super familiar. And, you know, there are times that I'm having sex and going like, am I really kinky? I mean, this is just fucking. And then I slap his face so, um, if he's in the right position for that. So and then I go like, oh, yes, yes, this, this would be considered kinky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not hearing a thank you, sir. I'm slapping again. So, uh, and the other thing is, is that, God, going on YouTube, family, please don't watch while too late. Um, I <laughs> have the habit of, or I really enjoy going to sex parties or orgies and uh, commercial ones. You know, I, when I lived in London, I was at hard on every freaking month to the point that I became almost furniture. Um, and over here, there's lab, especially the naked nights, because again, not textures or, or clothing, lots of new action. Uh, and basically what I like to do is rack up the numbers. Oh, you are nice. You are nice too. You are really nice. Look at me having sex with all these people. And there's a part of me that's very logical and, and very observant and goes like, no, you're just compensating for your youth, right? I mean, come on. This is the dumbest shit ever. You're really actually doing this? And then especially in the gym when I'm working out real hard, to get that body that projects that power, you know, assuming look. And I go like, why the hell are you doing this? You could be at home watching Stranger Things or whatever, and you're here another night a week. And then when I'm actually doing it, I'm going, I'm on top of the world, and this is my destiny, and I feel so authentic, and look at me do this. And my voice becomes lower because that's what they expect from me, man that I really have to sound like that. It's an automatic, I don't even put it on. I was putting it on right now, but I can feel myself doing that and going like, really, really, you're, you're putting on the voice, aren't you? And then I go like, but that's what I do. That's part of the situation. It is fun. I'm having a great, great time. And I've been doing that since I was 19. And it keeps not changing. And I keep having a great time. Prep, wonderful. Being checked for STDs every three months, right? You know, I deal with the consequences. Uh, I know exactly what choice I'm making. A fun, fun time. And if somebody then also starts licking my boot, well, that's a good boy and he gets extra attention.
Yeah, it's 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 for me I, because I a lot of people react in a certain way with me when I mention that I I do have a sir sign. I'm quite dominant and so on because a lot of people expect me to be the opposite. Um, I'm not saying I don't switch. I do, and I used to be quite submissive. Um, not so much now. Um, but for me, I, I think my dominant side comes from a little bit from being bullied so horrendously when I was a kid, and all of a sudden that the, the, it's kind of flipped. Well, we we try to fill our voids. We try to heal ourselves, and you know what we really should be doing is core therapy and talking it through and dealing with our attachment issues. But the short term, you know, as long as you can deal with it, you know, drugs and alcohol is also a way to deal with it, but that gets out of control real fast. Mm. Me, I'm spending a lot of time in the gym and I'm making a lot of bottom men really happy. I'm, I'm giving, man. I'm so giving. So what's the problem there? Right. But you have to know what you're doing. You have to know what you're doing. I mean, the hookup scene when you're young and you really want connection and things are can be really impactful the hookup scene is the coldest thing to go into right it's like you're just feeling used as a body was this really all there is and then you realize well you probably shouldn't try to get your valid your emotional validation from that you should get that from your friendships you should get that from your relationship and maybe you're monogamous and then you shouldn't do the the group sex or the sex or the polyamorous sex thing anymore. That really depends on who you are. But once you've got these experiences in place and you understand your place in life and the place that this kind of gay male sex culture, hookup culture has in life, dude, it can be such a rock in time. It's, 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 I, I, I will see if I can just get a smidgen of the way you look at it and, and just see if I can implement that on myself next time I go out, because that, that will probably help me. This king journey is about authenticity, right? It's about mm. finding out who you're in this play world, you're in this wonderland for whatever you want to do, like a little really for whatever you want to do. You're going to find somebody who wants to do this with you. And you can find out if it's you or not. And if groups, if dressing up in leather and just walking and having your non-alcoholic beer and talking to your friends while everybody else is having sex is your thing, you absolutely should freaking do that. There's a lot to about trying things. But for example, I never needed to try bottoming because it was like, mm, nope. And I actually did. In various ways in my 20s well two three ways and I'm like nope so if this is not for you nope you don't have to do it only do it if you find yourself attracted to it if it's in your mind um, or if you're the kind of person who likes to try stuff which you know is may or may not work it depends on how adventurous you are but there should be no pressure for anybody to play in a certain way with amount of people on certain drugs, doing certain things in certain bars. It's all yours. You have to, this whole thing means nothing if it's not about getting to yourself. Well, on that note, we are coming to the end of the time. 
Uh, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you and get some of your world views on kink and sober and just in generally know a bit more about you. It's been quite amazing to have you on. Uh, if anyone's listened to this or watched this and they kind of want to get in contact with you, which places can they get a hold of you? If you're on the major hookup apps, you will always find me under this name. <clears throat> um, Instagram is also under this name, a really great place to find me when you want to talk about this aspect of my life. So just tank top. I've never found anybody who wants to imitate it because you know, you imitate this and see what happens in all the messages that you're going to get and my weird life that will happen to you. And I, if you're smart, you stay away from that and you only leave that to me. So just look for a rough tank top and send me a message. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on. Have a great night. See you soon. You too. Bye. Before I end the episode, uh, as you can see, I have the trans badge uh, on this week. Uh, unfortunately, we had uh, a murder of a trans youth this past weekend. So um, I'm dedicating this episode to her, Brianna. Um, it's we need to protect our trans community and we need to especially protect our trans youth. Um, so it's very, very important. Sorry to get a little bit serious here at the end, but I think it's something that needs to be said, especially if you have a platform. So that was Rough Tank Top FJ. What a lovely guy to have on and such lovely experiences. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing him next time, either in Berlin or Grand Canary. So um, have a great weekend, stay safe, play fun, and uh, see you next time. Bye. Thank you.